Okay, we're on high. This is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are happy to welcome Benjamin Twoon, a co-founder and chief commercial officer of Funnel. Now that I know the proper way to how to pronounce this company, I like it even more. And a founder of HG Exchange, Benjamin. It's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? How are you, Michael? Excited, excited to be here with you on the show. Thanks I'm excited to have you. Before we get into the main part of the conversation, let's give our listeners a bit of your background for some context. Well, I'm the accidental entrepreneur. I <laughs> studied really hard in school, so didn't expect to, to embark on this journey. Traditional finance guy like yourself. Yeah. Um, so did my rounds with City, and then I was with uh, Pavilion Energy, which is um, a subsidiary of Tomasic. So we did investments in oil and gas. Okay. Um, and how I ended up in with Funnel right back then uh, was really because you know I thought about joining the big investment banks, private equity, oil and gas, and looking back at my journey, uh, it was. An evolution, right? I started with finance, and then there was obviously the financial crisis. There was Dodd Frank and Volcker, so everyone was getting out of finance. And then I thought, okay, let's let's go to oil and gas, private equity, right? Uh, and then in 2014, 2015, oil prices came falling down. So I said, you know, three strikes, I'm out. I really <laughs> have to go all in into, well, entrepreneurship. Uh, and I'm glad I did that, right? Because um, so far, it's been one of the most fulfilling journeys uh, in this life from, of this short life of my mind so far and really the impact that we create right, with the startups that we support, uh, with the technology that supports what we do, and also ultimately with the lives that we impact, right? It's been extremely fulfilling. Look, I don't think you can separate who you are from what you do, right? And you said this earlier, you're the accidental entrepreneur and you studied really hard in school and you kind of hinted at this fact. And again, tell me where I'm wrong that like the studying in school gets you a really great job. I did the same thing, right? I worked at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember once early on in my career at Morgan Stanley, I told my parents, like, I'm just going to quit my job and go teach English in Japan because I wanted to live and work in Japan. And they were just like, are you insane? Like, are you insane? And I'm wondering for you, like you did it later on in life, right? So you were less insane. But did your family wonder like, you're going to move out of like a traditional company and go into this unknown. What was that like? Wow. Yeah. I think in a nutshell, um, it was probably one of the toughest decisions I've made because obviously giving up uh, a cushy job with uh, a lot um, that was given to me, right. As, yeah. as opportunity, as compensation and taking this inordinate amount of risk uh, to, to start a company. Right, with with very, very little visibility of what's going to happen. That was one of the toughest decisions back then. But you know what? I'll say this. I'll say this. Ultimately, when you truly believe in the purpose of what you're doing, yeah. you truly believe in the value that you will bring with what you're pursuing, right? To communities, to people, to lives. The people around you, your family members, your loved ones, right, will be able to see that coming through. In the way that you share, right, with them about that decision, and they will support you. So, in a nutshell, for me, I I couldn't have been where I am today without that kind of support from family members and loved ones and friends, even. And and looking back at that journey, obviously a roller coaster. I think the one thing that helped me convince them back then was, I remember I said, "Give me four years. It's been eight years. It's been eight <laughs> it's years." Been eight years. <laughs> And counting. <laughs> but isn't, isn't that the thing, right? If you listen to all of the, and I'm going to put it in quotes, right? But if you listen to all of the startup hype, 
It's like a company gets started, they do their Series A, they list on the NASDAQ, and everybody becomes a billionaire, and it all seems to happen in a super compressed amount of time. But you know this because we talked about it offline. Like I like to say everyone's an overnight success 10 years later. Right? Like what you were doing is like buying time from the family and friends, like going, you know, it's like when you know you're going to be late, you're like, I'm just going to be 15 minutes late. And then you call and go, maybe it's 30. But, but you just say you're going to be late, right? So the four years is a period of time to just like establish the base knowing it's probably going to take 10. Is that fair? <laughs> well, I mean, you and I both know that's the pipe dream. And, and yeah. a lot of uh, conventional media plays up. Um, the successes and, and that's why you know a podcast like yours keeps it real keeps it authentic Trying. right yeah. you know everyone everyone talks about the successes 99.9 percent .9 of the failures those aren't necessarily covered those, yeah. those aren't necessarily celebrated so i think the the suffering and the struggles and the challenges that every entrepreneur goes through not a single one of them is free and immune from uh, from these challenges i think these are all real and and those should be surfaced those should be unpacked a lot more and and the reality is entrepreneurship that journey right building your own company right it's probably the single most difficult it's hard challenge you'll ever face not just you know for a day not just for a year right but for your entire journey and maybe beyond yeah it's it's super hard i was actually on a call yesterday with a friend of mine he and i are building some stuff together some stuff separately and i was like dude don't you ever feel like like everything is just going pear-shaped. Do you know what I mean? And he was like, yeah. yeah, every day. And I said, then don't you feel, do you ever feel like things are just amazing? And he also said to me, yeah, every day. And I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the ups and downs, I think, are things that people rarely, I wouldn't say never, but rarely talk about. I like talking about them because I want to be the counterbalance to the hype that you talked about earlier. I want to ask you this too, though. You know, one of the things that makes some, something so risky is it's like, like you said, it's limited visibility. And that's a concept I think that's hard for people to explain. But you also said committed to something. What was the thing that you were committed to, right? When you looked at the market and said, I'm going to do funnel. And I want to get to the found, the, the co-founders as well, right? Because I think that building that team is also really important. But what was the thing that you were committed to going, this is going to take some time, but I know things are going this way. That's a great question. And I think this this resonates right for me. Um, I think entrepreneurship is a catalyst for Singapore, for the country, you know, that I'm based in. Right? Yeah. Um, and also for Southeast Asia. Uh, this was back in 2015. So these were before your waves of unicorns, decacorns, you know, you're probably like not even looking at even um, having like five unicorns back then. For now sure. we have, yeah, we have multiples, right? I always believe that change, right, positive change has to be driven uh, with entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs isn't just someone that, you know, wants to start a business, right, but it's willing to stick his or her neck out, right, and say, I want to create that change. I'm going to stick my reputation. I'm going to stick my everything, right, to make this work, right, for the better. And that was really the catalyst for us leaving our jobs, saying that, look, capital is so important, right? to drive that change, right? Capital is important to bring good people together. Capital is important to catalyze, right? Their, their innovative juices, their, the ideas that they have and they want to bring to fruition. And that was why we started Funnel because we wanted to create infrastructure, right? And give people the platform to reach out to investors to get these 
great ideas, fund it, and ultimately bring the change that they hope to see in the world. So you said we left our jobs. Were you all, I mean, sure it wasn't all of you, but like were some of you working together? Do you know, was it like one of those things where you're sitting at your desk and you're just like, you know, we may be able to have more impact if we did this thing, which we talk about every day at work. Like, why can't we do X? Let's just go build X instead. Yeah, that's a great question. So my co-founders, uh, Kylan and Kelvin, they were both um, ex-bankers at JP Morgan. I was obviously in the other US bank city. But uh, <laughs> essentially, essentially, this was really off the back of the Jobs Act, right, that Obama signed, um, you know, back earlier in, uh, in the day. Right. And we looked at the U.S. as a leading indicator and saying that, look, if the Jobs Act, right, was going to be a catalyst, right, for the early stage companies in the U.S. and it was going to benefit the economy in that job creation, in that smaller businesses were given the funding and could access the funding that they required, then, of course, that would be Southeast Asia, right? That would be the markets that we're in maybe five years later. So that was the bet that we were willing uh, to make. And also that was the change we were hoping that would be realized in the ecosystem. And again, this is really more just for me than for anything else. I, co I once coordinated leaving my job with somebody else. And I'll never forget the day. It was, and back then there were no cell phones. <laughs> you can, so you can imagine how long ago it was really. And I remember calling each other and going, okay, I'm just about to go do this. I'm just about to walk, do you know what I mean? Was it like yeah. that or was it more public at the office where like people kind of knew what you guys were thinking or do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's interesting because um, Kelvin was in Hong Kong. Kalin was in Singapore. I was in Singapore. I knew Kalin and Kelvin from Common Friends. So um, we kind of all left our jobs um, at separate points in time. Got it. Okay. Um, and you know what? I squeezed in a month uh, in the US for a holiday before I actually <laughs> I did the same thing. But anyway. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. completely understand. But, but yeah, but yeah I, I, needed, I needed some... Uh, some headspace, right? Some time before I, I knew that this was going to be a long journey. I know yeah. this is not this is not like um, a sprint, right? This is a marathon, and and so yeah, it, it wasn't as well coordinated as you'd see in the movies, right? But um, we all were very committed to this mission, right? That we were hoping to to achieve, right? With the company back then when we started. So what's happened between? What did you say? It was founded in two thousand and fifteen. What's happened in the interim? It's almost seven years later now, right? Like, what has the growth been like? And has your, like, did the jobs impact, did the jobs act have the impact that you thought it was going to have? Cause I think it kind of did. And even if it did, like what's changed in the interim years? Well, we started working out of a car workshop in 2015. What does that mean though? In Singapore? <laughs> in Singapore. So we, we were bootstrapping, started out in a car workshop, second floor of a, a car workshop. And back then we were a team of six people, okay. right? Today, um, we're almost 10 times in terms of headcount. Uh, and back then, we only, we only had the Singapore office. Now, today, we have uh, four offices, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, right? In, back then, there was no regulatory framework or regime, right? Back then, we had no licenses. Today, we have two licenses in Singapore, potentially another two more that we're adding on. What are the licenses uh, license that you have in, in Singapore? Uh, we have two licenses. So the first license is Capital Market Services License. Yep. So that's for dealing in securities. Uh, we also have the Recognized Market Operator License, and yep. that is under HG Exchange, right, for the digital exchange, right? And uh, we're adding on a digital custody license. We're adding on a fund management license. So there's a lot going on uh, for us, right, even in a couple of months ahead.
in Malaysia, we have a recognized market operator license as well. So as you'd imagine, the kind of business that we do is one that is highly regulated, right? And the track record, the trust that the regulators must have in you to give you that sure. license is extremely high. Yeah. Sure. What What's the goal here though, right? I mean, you've got a capital markets license, which is really interesting, but then the RMO license as well, right? How do all these things fit together and how does the HD exchange fit into the funnel group? Like what's really going on here? Yeah. Give me an example. Like I'm a private company. What, what do I do with funnel? Yeah, I think that is the holy grail, right? Of, of private markets, right? How do you facilitate access into private markets? And then how do you help the investors, right? Recycle capital. So to your question, Michael, if you're a private company today and you're looking to raise capital, right? Under the capital market services license, we're able to support the company in the capital raising process, right? So we can put the company on our platform and we can facilitate smaller ticket investors. So earlier stage investors, or it could be, you know, even high net worth individuals, family offices who might want to participate, right? In your early stage fundraising endeavors, right? Subsequently, as these investors make those investments, they might ask, right? After three, after five years, how do I find liquidity, right? So there are two ways in which we can also support um, that liquidity mechanism. Firstly, under the fund management business that I was talking just now about, or I alluded to, right? Yep. There, there are several strategies, what we call secondary strategies, right? Where the fund can buy secondary shares. So it's not buying um, new shares, right? It's not subscribing to new shares, I bet your pardon but it's purchasing existing shares from shareholders, founders, early employees, right? So that's one potential avenue for liquidity. Now, the second avenue for liquidity is obviously on the exchange, right? And as you'd imagine, that would mean tokenization of those shares I was gonna and then having that. that being traded, right? So I think that's extremely complementary and that's how the funnel group comes together. It's not just raising capital, which right. is one-off. It is also about thinking what happens, right, beyond that, to transfer risk to investors that may be willing to take on that risk three to five years from the first time the company raised capital. So can I think you, that's extremely important. I think it's super important. And can you talk about this just again, so people can understand, just dig a bit deeper for me here. You said the word liquidity like three or four times, right? And, you know, I come from a stock trading background in listed, so it's called them public markets, right? And yeah. there were entire strategies around trading illiquid. So infrequently traded stocks that didn't trade a lot of volume on any particular day, frankly, in any particular month. Why is liquidity so important for price discovery, for ownership transfer? Like, why does it matter so much? And how do you facilitate it in a tokenized secondary market? Because that's the real interesting part of this, yeah? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you why liquidity is so important, right? Because first and foremost, private equity, venture capital, investing in private companies, yeah, whether it be through funds or direct into company, it is becoming so accessible. And there are many platforms that would enable you to do so, right, with fractional tickets, right? Okay. Everyone's about lowering ticket size, right? Yep. The one thing that people may not realize or may not have experienced, especially investors that are new to this asset class, is illiquidity, right? right. It's being locked up for 10 years, right? And a lot of times when they do need capital urgently for whatever reason, right? In the stock markets, in the public markets, you call your broker or you put it through a platform. And more often than not, right? 
you should be able to get that order to sell filled, right? Whether in a couple of hours or in several days. At right? some price, depending, yeah. depending on price. At some price, at some price. And also because there are a lot more market makers in the public markets, okay? In the private markets, that is underdeveloped. And that scares me, right? That we're touting massive growths in AUM for the private markets, but there is an absolute lack of infrastructure of ecosystem participants, right? Like the market makers that I spoke about, right? To drive a liquid private market. And that's why it's so important, right? To solve this, because that's the only way the private markets can grow at this sustainable rate, right? As opposed to everyone coming in, getting invested, right? Because of the excess, because of everyone's desire to make the 5X, 10X, right? Yeah. Uh, but then after, and, and then after they make those gains, or rather they make those paper gains, the question is, oh, how do I sell this? <laughs> how do I, how do I realize those gains, right? right? It is not- it Or is cut not. my losses, either one, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're seeing an all-time high, like an all-time high interest in privates, right? Because of how value now is being captured before IPO. Post-IPO, if you looked at a lot of the top tech companies, especially in this part of the world, in Asia, yeah. in Southeast Asia, right? You looked at the performance of those share prices, right? Um, they've come off significantly, right? 70, even 80%, right? Of those uh, share price has fallen, right? From the IPO price, right? So value is being captured in the private side right. of the market. And can we just understand as well what tokenization, like what's the benefit of tokenizing this as opposed to just having it be... Right, because the thing about the public markets is if you want to list on the Singapore exchange, if you want to list on the yeah. Tokyo Stock Exchange, if you want to list on the NASDAQ, you have to meet certain listing requirements, right? Absolutely. And that's why you have faith in it. It's a, and it's blind trading, right? So if I buy a share of Apple computer, I don't know from whom I'm buying it. And if I sell it, I don't know who the buyer is, right? So that's one of the benefits too, but I trust the fact that the exchange is going to settle with me. That's why the exchanges exist really, right? That's the idea of centralized exchanges. We can talk about decentralization later, but what's the benefit in the private markets of tokenization? Is it, is it just to make sure that the listing requirements are okay? Is the line blurring you think between public markets and private markets as well? I know there's a lot in there, but. Yeah, no, I think, I think great question, right? Tokenization is a means to an end. Okay. Yeah. And, and we can always talk about the benefits of tokenization in relation to, you know, fractional ownership, right? Sure. Breaking down minimum tickets, because obviously liquidity is a function of that as well, right? The smaller, the smaller you can break up, right? That chunk. It's, it's almost like, imagine if today a, a share in a public market was 10,000 per share, as opposed to like a hundred per share, obviously at a hundred per share, you're going to see a lot more retail participation and and as a function of that liquidity. Now, for me, to your point on governance, I think that's extremely important. Yeah. At the end of the day, liquidity will be there when there is a good company that people are interested in, that has good growth prospects, and that people want to get into, right? There will be demand. And hopefully, as the company grows, right, there should be a very healthy and sustainable uptick in terms of pricing to reflect that growth. So for us, right, and at a history exchange, whatever we list on the exchange, right, which today includes asset-backed security. So it's it's tokens tied to real-world assets, real-world assets that, that we believe will grow in value. It's also private companies, private shares of companies, right? Now, we do a serious, serious amount of due diligence on every single offering 
before we can list it on the exchange. So there is a listing committee, right? And before any of these listings are approved for, for tokenization and then subsequently listing of token on the exchange, uh, there is an independent committee that sits down and goes through all this, all these documents, right? So, well, it isn't as onerous, it isn't as long drawn as a public market listing, but there is some work that goes into it. And that work is substantial to bring us to a point that we say we're comfortable with the issuer, we're comfortable with corporate governance, we're comfortable with the asset, or we're comfortable with the company, right? Uh, that we're going to put onto the exchange. So I think in a nutshell, um, Governance and that process of due diligence is also important in private markets. Agreed. Maybe even more so. Yeah, maybe more so, right? And I want to talk a little bit more about this asset-backed securities. Again, just so people that aren't familiar with them can get a better understanding. Because I think what something like the HD Exchange is doing is actually two-sided. The first is it's changing the nature of the people. So who can invest? But it's also changing the things into which they can invest. In other words... Because you can fractionalize it using tokenization, which may sound confusing to some people, it means that I can invest in hard assets that were not accessible for investment before, not just the things that people think about when they think about investing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's exactly what we did. Can you yeah. give me an example? Yeah. So one of the fun examples that I like to, to talk a lot about is um, whiskey casts, right? And, and we were the first platform, I would say at least to my knowledge in the world, to list a whiskey cask, right, on a digital exchange. Yeah. Now, because there, there was obviously a lot of interest. And I think if you read some of the Knight Frank reports, there's extensive literature about how whiskey is probably one of the top alternative luxury assets uh, in terms of a 10-year performance. Yeah, but I, I was going to say, 500%. but this is really interesting, right? Because Whiskey trades in a way like Berkshire Hathaway stock trades, and you mentioned this before, right? Berkshire Hathaway trades at $462,000, give or take, a share, which means that it's not investable for regular people. Correct. Even if I want to invest with Warren Buffett, I can't do it because I can't afford to buy one share. But whiskey itself is also expensive. Even if I have a view on whiskey, I can't put 10 bucks into it. I have to put thousands of dollars into it. So if you're suggesting that the tokenization allows me to put my and I'm putting in quotes, 10 bucks into it, well then it, and I hate to use this terminology, but then it democratizes not just, like I said, who can invest, but into what it can be invested. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And if we could do that for whiskey, we're doing that for wine, we're doing that for art. We're doing that for a lot of other non-traditional assets. And as you mentioned just now, right, like really these are all the assets that have grown in value, right, tremendously over the last 10 years. And people want access to these assets. We get inquiries uh, from people all over the world. We get even inquiries from private banks because their clients are asking them for exposure to such assets. And, and many a times it, it goes through uh, a fund structure, right? Fair Where enough. you have a fund manager that looks after all of this. But, you know, investors are getting more and more sophisticated. Yeah. They want to be able to pick the artwork that they get, they get exposure to. They want to be able to pick the whiskey casts that they, they have partial ownership in. And with the exchange, with fractionalization, they're able to do so. And they're not only able to express their view on certain distilleries, they're able to express their views on certain vintages, and they're able to customize that exposure in terms of the different casts, right? So certain casts, they can buy more tokens and express uh, a more bullish view, and there are other casts where they can buy less as well. So a lot of 
customizability when it comes to putting it on exchange and when people can trade it. So it's still actively trading on exchange, uh, these, these whiskey tokens. How has the low interest rate environment impacted the things into which people invest? <laughs> yeah, you know, when interest rates were low, um, basically everyone was taking a lot of risk, right, in, in the private markets as well, because yep. you could essentially borrow money at near zero, at zero and deploy it, yeah, near zero and, and deploy it, right, and to high risk type investments and on a risk adjusted basis, especially in the boom years uh, over the past, I would say even through COVID, right, it would, until just recently when yep. stock markets corrected, right, and even crypto markets corrected, um, you could basically make a lot of money just by ETFs even. Yeah. So I think I think low interest rate environments, people were, were taking a lot of risk. And because people weren't able to travel, people were spending money on luxury assets, luxury washes, buying cars, buying houses, buying whiskeys, buying wines, art, right? So I think it's not just investment. I think it was consumerism as a whole benefiting uh, from the low interest rate environment. I think but times right. have changed. Yeah. Times have changed. <laughs> Can we talk about the technology side of this as well? Again, just because sure. it's something that I'm curious in, I'm curious about. We can look at the tokenization of everything, and I think if I rem if my memory serves me correctly, we were looking at tokenization initially through the ERC twenty or twenty one. I think it's ERC twenty tokens, right? Yeah. For the tokens themselves, and then we moved into these non fungible tokens, which to me are really just like a legal framework around the ownership of an individual asset, having nothing to do in particular with apes and art and stuff like that, right? Let's just put that aside. But that is an Ethereum-based thing, right? I mean, I think people just take for granted that there's only one platform that has smart contracts where things can get, you know, tokenized. Is there a movement away, or is there at least a diversification from Ethereum, which tends to be a little bit expensive, right? To process yeah. stuff. Gas gets expensive as people start buying and selling and doing more transactions into something like Polygon, or is all of this going to stay ERC-721? Do you know what I mean? Got it. Um, short answer is, I think it really depends on the outcomes, right, that, that you're looking to achieve. Um, a lot of people pick Ethereum back in the day because basically um, that was the easiest way for them to get funding, yeah. right, to get funding. Right. And and it was a very widely accepted protocol. And as you said, back in the day, ERC-20, this was widely accepted as a gold standard. Right. I think um, the competitors or what we call the L1, the layer one protocols, a lot of them have also upped the game. Like today, if you look at OpenSea, right, largest platform for NFTs, right? yep. uh, it's not it's not just Ethereum based offerings. It's Solana as well. Yep. So Solana has come a long way. Right. So you mentioned Polygon and there are a whole bunch of other protocols, AVAX. Right, that we look at, right, Polkadot, right. I think um, if you look at the amount of technology out there that's being developed from a protocol perspective, from an L1 perspective, layer one perspective, um, Ethereum is definitely facing very stiff competition. And well, obviously, gas prices have come off on a dollar from a dollar perspective significantly. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, from I mean. It's, 50% off, right, from 4,000 right now. Yep, down to 2,000, yeah. Yeah, down to 2,000. So it's 50% off, right? But again, it's still not cheap because I'm sure Michael remember back in the day, it wasn't even $600. No, right? it's cheap, super cheap. At, yeah. at $600, everyone's saying Ethereum is expensive. I think even at $200, people say <laughs> Ethereum is expensive, right? But, but I think the point is this. I think Ethereum definitely has um, the benefit of having the investor base, right? People that uh, will back 
projects, right, that are on uh, the Ethereum blockchain, right? But I do see a lot of credible alternatives coming up. And I'll give you give you a case in point. So for HG Exchange, right? Yep. Right. We're working towards also Ethereum, right? Uh, listings, right? But today we're using Zilliqa, right? Zilliqa is our protocol, right? And because Zilliqa is a shareholder and as well strategic partner of our exchange. Nice. Right. That allows for high level of customizability and, and really allows us to launch anything, right? Whether it's whiskey, wine, art, idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic offerings, I call it, right? Right. Enables us to bring that from cradle to grave, right? In a matter of weeks, if we, if we work with Zilliqa, because they are like a dedicated kind of a protocol and also a dedicated development um, capability that we can tap. Right. So that's important. That's important for us. Can we get back to this idea of taking risk, right? So your co-founders worked at JP Morgan, you worked at Citibank. I worked at Citibank. I never worked at JP Morgan. I worked at Morgan Stanley, but close enough, close enough. right? <laughs> but is there an excitement about what you're working on? I think I can hear it in your voice. Do you know what I mean? Because it's kind of like on the cutting edge, but but again, you know where it's going, right? You said limited visibility, but I feel like there's a visibility funnel. And again, tell me if I'm wrong. We're like maybe five years ago or six years ago, you're like, I don't know, but I think. And now aren't you more like, I'm pretty sure, let's execute. Do you know what I mean? And isn't there an excitement around, God, we can't move fast enough, but not because you're in a hurry, but because it's just so exciting. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of people ask me what keeps me up at night. Yeah. Right? And, and I can tell you it is exactly that fear and excitement <laughs> and it, it is it, it almost sounds like it's it's polarized right like uh you know it's the uh, same, you yeah it's yeah but but the truth is it's the same right on one hand i'm so excited about all the opportunities that we have and and you know what with and for everyone right on the podcast listening to the podcast like web3 right and this revolution right uh this decentralized economy will bring so much change yet so much opportunity. Yeah. So the excitement of the opportunity, but the fear of the change. So even Funnel, seven years, we've grown so much, right? But every single day we're asking ourselves, how is this economy going to evolve? How is our business going to evolve? Who are the new competitors, right? And the new entrants, how are they going to change the lay of the land? How are the rules of the game going to change? And, and I tell you, with Web3, with blockchain, that change is only going to be accelerated. Massive catalyst for that change. And that's what gets us so excited but also gets us scared at night, right? Thinking around what we need to do next. Do you see, and do you think that there has to be a dedicated place for this? Or do you think that things that exist in the metaverse are also going to be tradable through some plot, whether it's, what did you call it? Zillica or Polygon yeah. or Ethereum or whatever it is. But that they're also, and game assets as well, we can talk about that too, but they're also, that they're going to sit on exchange too. That the ones that really have value, right, and that people really want to buy and trade and that are interoperable, will actually trade on exchange and not just in one place. Do you know what I mean? And that the market Absolutely. making in those will kind of grow too. And we can argue about whether the metaverse is real or not real, but we're, we're moving in that direction. I feel like it's one of those things where like, we're going there. You can say we're not going to go there, but when we get there, you're going to be the only person out in the cold without a jacket for the metaverse kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I fully agree with you. And I, you know what? At the end of the day, right, what you mentioned, will it trade on an exchange? Will there be market making? I, I believe that 
capital and the infrastructure that facilitates capital will converge right around value right and when i say value it could be assets in the real world it could also be assets in the digital world right and it will be assets in the metaverse so at some point there will be a big enough demand right from obviously the crypto investing community and as well the traditional investing community to want to gain access right to such assets so it's no different from the, the you know the case in point of funnel when we were looking at private companies back in the day seven years ago right what i'm seeing now seven years later is basically metaverse right and yeah. the assets in the metaverse yeah digital private assets if you think about it right so your digital jacket right maybe today there may not be as many buyers or interest in that jacket but seven years later people might want to buy a jacket that michael owns in the metaverse yeah and there will be there will be infrastructure there will be also capital right that is speculating or also taking a longer term view on those assets and they will they will appear right once the value has grown to a point where it hits it's basically it hits scale right or hits a critical mass yeah and look the ability to buy and sell assets up until web3 and the decentralization of these assets in a digital format was in some way extremely local right like you had a sotheby's auction in manhattan that sold art yeah. from monet and you literally you almost had to be in that room or have somebody in that room kind of communicating with you over a cell phone to be able to make bids and offers on these things mostly bids yeah, yeah because they're they're selling them but what this has given us is the ability to then distribute this globally and instantaneously for all types of assets and Absolutely. i want to ask you about this and to be fair you know, we saw this in the stock market. There was a time where stocks actually traded through digital platforms and on the floor of a stock exchange at the same time. And there was an arbitrage, right? So on the floor, maybe it was trading at a higher or lower price than it was on the digital exchange. You could trade against it, it made no sense. So they just digitized everything because it made it more immediate. The same thing is gonna happen, I think, across all asset classes and tokenization is gonna make that available globally. But you did mention before that there simply aren't enough market makers right? How does that change? I'm, I don't, like, I'm thinking in my head, is it like winner take all in the market making space? Because that's not good either. But if it's not, how do we expand the number of market makers so that price discovery is more efficient? Great, great, great question. So, I mean, to your point just now about, you know, why this is such an exciting space, I think, firstly, we've seen at least in the past 12 months, right? Yep massive uptick in terms of institutional participation in this space. When I talk about institutional capital, I don't just mean your traditional financial institutions, right? Okay. I mean, private equity, venture capital, everyone is taking a view on or taking a position in, right? Blockchain, Web3, cryptocurrency, right? There is, they have a view, whether they deploy capital or not, that's a separate question, but right. everyone has a view, yeah? So with that in place, right? Not only will we see massive innovation, massive developments and improvements, right? In technology and also in the developments in the space, I think you also see massive opportunity for market makers to come and intermediate, right? Now, market makers would not take positions or they would not market make in a situation where liquidity is extremely thin or on yeah. very, very volatile, on extremely volatile, um, 
prices, right? Whether it's cryptocurrencies or digital assets. Yeah. yeah and that's true for every asset, I think. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, absolutely. So as institutional capital comes in, as market caps start hitting sort of larger quantums, right? I think we will see, especially for the more established, say, cryptocurrencies or digital assets, a trading band. And with a sustained band of price uh, trading within, right, uh, the a mean, right, range, market makers will start participating. Market makers will, will there will be an inflow of market makers. There should be no shortage of those market makers. Yeah. Especially and, as the exchanges get larger. And actually, they'll drive that band. They'll make the band. Yeah. I mean, this is what happens in any trading market is, this is, I use the word price discovery, like, very deliberately. This yeah. idea of actually knowing where something trades, or we used to say, you know, if you're, a, if you're a 70 bid and a 90 offer, well, you could drive a truck through that spread. And the idea is to have the spreads be as tight as possible. You know this, right? So that it's a real price. And if you look at the way, and I'm dating myself a little bit, but if you look at the way HSBC used to trade in the Hong Kong market, it was literally like $100 million right. on the bid and $100 million on the offer, your choice. Which way do you want to go? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you see, the thing is this, right? I mean, with more institutional capital coming in, um, there will also be much stronger support, especially right on counters where people are, are bullish and they're going long on, right? Now, yeah. obviously, on the flip side, on the flip side, you'll have a lot more hedge fund participation. You also have more volatility that's being added uh, by some of these uh, traders. But I would say that for a lot of the capital that we're seeing investing in the space, right, it has been beneficial, a net benefit, right, for price stability for most of these more established names, more established assets. So the caveat here is that it may not apply to a lot of the earlier staged uh, tokens, right? A lot of the earlier um, tokens before they actually hit one of the major exchanges. So you just have to cover, it's a massive caveat and we have to be careful, right? When looking at some of these early stage projects, but with a lot of the, the guys that are trading, say Bitcoin, Ethereum, even to some extent, um, some of the more established NFTs, right? Like Bored Ape, CryptoPunk, there is a band where market making can can come in and be a net positive, right? For for all participants yeah. in that asset. I want to get a little geeky for a second, if you don't mind. No, sure. Some liquidity is provided in the markets through prime brokerage businesses that hold stocks in custody and then allow me to borrow those stocks, paying the owners of those stocks some fair interest rate, which is gets decided by the market, which then allows me to sell them short because my view on them is different than the view of the owners of those stocks. And in the public markets, that's relatively straightforward. There are some markets that restrict short selling because they just think it's evil. But at some level, short selling can be good if it just provides liquidity. There are some cases where it's bad, right? Particularly in market manipulation situations. But is there a place and I always go back to the same example. Like I would have loved to have been able to short WeWork because it was obviously it was some kind of scam. Is there a way in a, the HD exchange and other digital marketplaces to create a prime brokerage style business so that there are assets there to provide more liquidity, particularly for market makers, so that those assets can be short sold as well? So that people don't just have the choice of buying, doing nothing or selling. That's a great question. And today, well, it's not something that we ex offer, right, as a solution on our exchange. Okay. And I would say for most exchanges, for that matter, right? But I do see a massive potential for that with synthetics, 
right? So you don't necessarily have to lend shares. So with short selling, right, you're essentially lending off shares, right? Yep. But to mirror to mirror that essentially is is creating, say, for example, a contract for difference. I understand. Right. CFTs. And, and in that way, you don't necessarily have to limit yourself um, to lending shares or to to number of shares you have custodized. So I think there are creative ways to to get around that, right? Uh, but again, it, it begs the question, right? You, in order for that to happen, you need someone to take the opposite side of yeah. the trade, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so on, that's on that's on the synthetic, right? Um, but again, short selling, I do agree with you. It, it it is to some extent, it is beneficial for the market. We've seen obviously cases where with market volatility, prices have just gone like fifty percent or more, yeah. right? Off off that off the tops, right? Um, my personal take is that especially for cryptocurrencies and especially for digital assets, I think the ecosystem needs a little bit more time to mature, right? For short selling to become a viable and a net beneficial solution, right? For anyone looking to provide liquidity in the market. Got it. Okay, look, we've covered a ton of ground, probably more than you expected, but hopefully you had a good time. Fun. Yeah. I really want to thank you, Benjamin Tuna, co-founder and chief commercial officer of Funnel and a founder of HD Exchange. I've really enjoyed this. I hope you did too. I did. It was so much fun, Michael. Can't wait for the next time.